This week on HPH, we are mixing things up. Instead of telling you one gory tale of death, destruction, and woe, we're telling you four tales of accomplishment, bravery, and just general badassery. And it just so happens that all of these tales are centered around historical women that you should have been taught about a long time ago. Grab a drink, or maybe four, and settle in for this episode entitled 100 Proof His... I'm sorry, 100 Proof History. Four Bad Bitches. This is 100 Proof History. We're drinking whiskey and talking history. So, grab a drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy a few laughs as the guys talk about all the horrible things people do to each other. Here are your hosts, Chris and Greg. Hello, everyone. Thanks for uh, thanks for stopping by. Hey, nice to see you. Welcome to Hunter Proof History. I'm your main host, Greg. And I am your sexy host, Christopher. Greg, it's good to be back in the studio with you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's dusty in here, man. Yeah. We were away for so long. And I have learned that that was not a Zoom background. You have turned the studio into a complete and perfect recreation of the set of ALF. Mm-hmm. The hit 1980s TV series. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to be here, man. That's pretty cool. Uh, I was a big ALF fan. I always wanted to, you know, see what was below the belt on ALF. See, <laughs> you know, the alien life form penis meta looked like, but uh, it never came to fruition. Probably just like a sharp green blade or something. <laughs> Not at all what you would be thinking of. No, but we have successfully defeated COVID, haven't we? I don't know. That's how people are acting these days. Yeah. I, mean, I feel like we should be hanging banners off of a battleship. Mission like, accomplished. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, and ladies, of course. Oh, yes. Yeah, ladies' night here on HPH. That's right. Please visit us online at 100proofhistory.com. We're actually currently running a contest. Uh, Patreon members get extra bonus entries into these, so check out our Patreon while you are on the website. Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this contest? Okay, so first of all, we're giving away a sweet-ass H.H. Holmes Murder Castle print for you to hang on your wall. It is framed, uh, 11 by 17, nice-looking poster, very cool. It has all the fake names for the H.H. Holmes rooms that we talked about in that series. Yeah, it's pretty fucking cool-looking. I kind of want it. Me too. I'm probably going to have to order me a, a second one just to have it for myself. But no, the way you enter, you go to our website. You fill out a form, and that's basically your entry. There are ways to get bonus entries. Uh, if you recommend a friend, listen to HPH in, on that same form, you'll get a bonus entry. Just trying to get you guys involved and uh, give away some really cool shit. Yeah, and uh, you know we're obviously trying to spread the love too, grow this thing mm -hmm. into the big boy that it can be one day. Yep. Or a big girl. I'm trying to grow it to a point where someone will actually sue me. Then I'll feel like I've made it. Ugh. I'm not looking forward to that day, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it will mean something. Yeah, you've made it. I plan to just cooperate at the cease and desist portion of things, you know? Not me, man. I'm fighting it tooth and nail, <laughs> kicking and screaming. I'm going to go into the courthouse looking like fucking Joe Exotic. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> of course, uh, you know, you saw when I gave myself that quarantine haircut. Oh, I yeah. I was looking a little like Joe Exotic. Yeah, you were. That sweet-ass stripes down the side. Had a mullet, stripes down the side shaved into my head. He was making out with a young, straight male who was just there for the <laughs> meth. <laughs> oh, what are you drinking today? Today, because we are talking about four special ladies, I am having four 
Roses Small Batch Select Bourbon. 104 proof. Very delicious. I enjoy it immensely. So highly recommend it. Gregory, like the what are you having today? Uh, I'm actually drinking an old-fashioned, mm-hmm. um, and I'm doing it with Sazerac rye. Okay, that's Which good is shit. a bit of a juxtaposition, because when it comes to ladies, I don't like the Saz, but I like the rack. <laughs> I like it. Sazerac rye. Yeah, it's going to be a struggle for us not to uh, expose our misogynistic sides here as we go forward, but we're going to do our best. But that's just us being characters. I think you guys know that by now. Oh, yeah. No, we don't I- believe like any of the shit we say. None of the stories we tell are real. No, if I was actually like this in real life, my wife would literally kill me just for <laughs> being this terrible of a human. No. Yeah, my wife's boyfriend would probably be picking fights with me <laughs> if I was telling real stories about him. Hey, bro, you want to step outside of your own house? You want to go? You wanna... <laughs> I already sleep out here, sir. What Come you... on, man. I'm already in the kennel. <laughs> yeah. Fucking with me. Um, I do want to say something about this. Um, so this is kind of like we're just throwing four hangovers in at once. And hangovers are something you find on our Patreon special mini episodes. We aren't really trying to do this whole pandering women's history thing like oh you know we these are genuinely amazing stories that we were going to cover anyway yes and then once i started looking through our hangover list i'm like oh that's a good story that's a good story and then i'm like wait these are all women perfect tie together you know let's do it that way turn it into an entire episode yeah. yeah so that's what we're doing here and if you like these miniature stories be sure to check out our patreon where you'll get access to one a week of smaller stories that we also approach from a very casual angle but yeah, because we have four different stories, our sources are going to be varied. Um, you can find information about these ladies all over the World Wide Web, so look them up. Yeah, and the various uh, tubes and things around the internet. Yep. Well, are you ready to... Oh, I don't want to say fuck this dog on Ladies Night here on HPH. I'm ready to let this dog fuck me. There you go. Give the bitches the power. Too Jesus. Much. <laughs> Too much. I'm sorry. No! <laughs> Well, Gregory, the first woman we're going to talk about is Nellie Bly. Nellie Bly was born as Elizabeth Jane Cochran in 1864 in a small town outside of Pittsburgh. She had four siblings and ten half-siblings through her father, who died when she was just six, making Elizabeth's childhood one of poverty. And if you've ever listened to a Hangover, that's standard shit. Everybody's parents die. Oh, yeah. You know, that's not just Hangover characters whose parents die, right? Like... I've got some bad news for you, no. Chris. No. Mommy and Daddy aren't going anywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, all I have learned over the year we've been doing this is that if your parents die, you are destined for greatness. hmm Or assholery. But one way or the other, you're going to make your mark on the world. I mean, greatness? Yeah. I mean, Hitler was a great figure. He was not good. I don't support this angle. <laughs> no, I mean, great as in, you know... Size, as in impact. Impact. Yeah, There not, you go. He was very impactful to history. That's true, he was. Greg loves Hitler. That's what, no. I, that's what I learned here. No, I hate Hitler. <laughs> I'm stupid. God damn you, Chris. You backed me into a corner. Yep. I hate Hitler. I hate him. Anyway, in 1879, at the age of 15, Elizabeth enrolled in Indiana Normal School, which is the exact opposite of Hogwarts. Just really fucking boring. It is now known by the also confusing name of Indiana University of Pittsburgh. Now, I'm no geography major, but isn't Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania? It is. Mm. 
Oh, whatever. What about the University of uh, Miami in Ohio? Well, that's in Miami, Ohio. It's still fucking confusing. It is confusing. That's why my wife got really pissed on our honeymoon when we went to Paris, Texas. Is that what Will Smith was singing about? Welcome to Miami. Yeah. He's talking about Ohio. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bunch of miserable steel workers in jackets. Oh, yeah. Ohio State jackets. Oh, yeah. Oh, they won't shut up about that. Uh, the Ohio State. Well, Nellie only stayed in college for a year before she ran out of money and had to drop out. A few years later, in 1882, Elizabeth was reading the Pittsburgh Dispatch newspaper when she stumbled on an article that implied women were good for two things, making babies and cooking dinner. Which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Cook breakfast and lunch as well. I know, right? Snacks. Do the fucking dishes. Dessert. Make Yeah. Iron my shirt. So many things. No. This guy's really underselling women. <laughs> no. Well, Elizabeth thought that was just a complete load of shit. Hey, we donated to a fucking women's shelter last month. I can say whatever I want. That's my ticket. <laughs> yeah. Us donating to the women's shelter is basically like the racist guy saying, I have a black friend. It's okay. Yeah. I got a pass. I yeah. got the misogynist pass. <laughs> I paid for it. Well, Elizabeth thought that was a load of shit and wrote an angry letter to the editor under the pseudonym Lonely Orphan Girl. The editor was impressed by her moxie, and not only did he publish the letter, but he also decided to give her a full-time job as a columnist. Since newspapers in those days insisted that all women writers use a pen name, Elizabeth chose Nellie Bly after an African-American character from a minstrel song of the same name. Her first article dealt with the effects of divorce on women and spoke of divorce reform. Like, hey, maybe we shouldn't just put these women on ice floats and send them into Lake Huron when they get divorced. Because they're all used up. <laughs> Her next articles dealt with the way women were treated in the workplace, specifically at factories. Once the factory owners read it, they were pissy that some gal was throwing a wrench into their schemes to exploit women as cheap, abusable labor, and wrote angry letters to the paper's editor. And this guy, you write him an angry letter, he's going to respond. Oh, yeah. He's going to give it up to you. He's like, please, please don't be mad at me. I, I just make the paper. And because life is basically a Hollywood movie where the press is an unimpeachable beacon of justice and truth, the editor stood up for her, and the evil factory owners were forced to change. Whoa. Mission accomplished. That's good. Hang, Hang the banners. I'm just kidding. The editor promptly moved Nellie to the women's section of the paper to cover fashion and theater and, you know, advancement in tampon technology. Something like that. Yep. New Yoplait flavors. Or- <laughs> yeah. Yoga pants and stuff. Women's stuff. Yeah, latest stuff that I don't understand. Women's studies. I like to study women. That's the only way I can feel close to them. (laughs) Telephoto lenses at the park. (laughs) Well, Nellie wasn't satisfied with her new degrading position, so she moved to Mexico to work as a foreign correspondent. She reported on the way of life of the Mexican citizens who were living under a pseudo-dictator named Porfirio Diaz. And that's the same one... We mentioned in Hangover Number 5, who fucked over his best buddy Juan Cortina. Mm-hmm. After Nellie reported on the Mexican government locking up a journalist, a warrant was issued for her arrest. She said, fuck that noise, and went back to Pittsburgh. Mexico's pretty bad. Pittsburgh's worse, but they don't want to arrest me in Pittsburgh, so. They're too busy being miserable in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. At this time, Pittsburghians, don't send me angry emails. Whatever. Pittsburghians? I don't know what they're called. Pittsburghians? They're called idiots. Assholes? Yeah. They're too 
busy worrying about the steel and coal industries to listen to a podcast. Pissing in all three of their rivers. Mm-hmm. At the same time. Yeah. I, I do admire that. That's that's pretty impressive. Well, once she got back, the editor of her paper was, you know, just once again a real hero and put her back to work reporting on women's issues. Where to go in Mexico, honey? Now, why don't you tell me how this dress would look on a celebrity? Hmm. <laughs> it was shortly thereafter that Nellie realized that Pittsburgh was a smelly steel wasteland that had tried to overthrow the government in 1791, and it was time to move up in the world. Go Cowboys. She moved to New York City, where, after struggling for four months, she found employment working for Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper, New York World. This was uh, the inventor of the prize, by the way. Whoa. Pulitzer's Prize. Oh, okay. That did not put that together. Didn't make sense to me. Why? It, it barely. It's, I mean, it's hanging on a thread it's, in my own yeah, brain. Tenuous. To be yeah, absolutely. Oh, so he invented the Nobel Prize. That's what you're telling me? Pulitzer Prize. No, I don't get it. Doesn't make sense. He just invented the prize, period. It's just a prize. Nobody had ever been awarded something for nothing before. Oh, gotcha. Much like, uh, we're just kidding, you have to do shit for our giveaway. <laughs> it's not really a prize then. Mr. John H. Crackerjack came up to him. He's like, I'm having trouble selling my sugary popcorn. What should I do? And Pulitzer's like, put a prize in it. Holy fuck, mind blown. Uh-huh. Yeah, I get you. I get so, you. He invented prizes. Okay. Prize fighting, all that shit. Trophy wives. Mm-hmm. That's a prize. That all came from Joseph Pulitzer. Little known fact. Yep. We're teaching you people. You're welcome. No need to thank us. <laughs> Just kidding. Send us emails and thank us. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Like right now. Yeah, yeah. Pause, send the email, then press play. I don't know how many times I've had the barrel of a shotgun in my mouth, and I'm like, oh, what's that? Email alert. Hey, guys, keep up the good work. Oh. A little tear rolls down my cheek. Uncocked. Roll, rolls down the fucking barrel of the shotgun, <laughs> yeah. then you take it out of your mouth. I'm like, oh, now I have salt water on this thing. I gotta clean it, and after I'm done cleaning it, I'm like, oh, well, I guess it wasn't worth it after all. Suicide's not funny, Chris. We'll see. We'll see what I come up with. <laughs> it's going to be like that game of mousetrap. <laughs> You're going to choose to end it one day. Yeah, it's just going to be like books falling over in a domino effect and marbles dropping off of countertops. And Yeah. It's all going to be kicked off by some pizza delivery guy who's just trying to, you know, give me food. <laughs> He's like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> You're like the guy in Saw but for yourself. <laughs> You're just playing games to kill yourself. <laughs> I bet I'll fall for this one. No, I won't, you idiot. <laughs> well, Nellie's first article would go on to be her most famous. Nellie decided to investigate the seedy underbelly of New York's insane asylums. Mm. I know. Every time I say seedy underbelly, I get half a chub. I'm not going to lie. God. <laughs> when did we use that? <laughs> I don't even know. It probably got taken out of an episode. I don't even know if it's in something, but... It probably had something to do with my mother. Yeah, I think it did. <laughs> <laughs> well, to do this, she decided to have herself thrown into an insane asylum. Makes sense. Genius. First, she checked herself into a boarding house called Temporary Homes for Females. She then refused to go to bed, saying she thought the staff was crazy. They said, This lady thinks we're crazy, but she's the one who's a few skedaddles short of a full skidoo, you see. Quote, Quote, it's exactly what they said, because, I don't know, it was the turn of the century or something. I don't, when was this? I don't even remember. Yeah, you know, sometimes. Olden times. Olden times. 1880s something. <laughs> well, after only one night, they had the cops come to take her away to see a judge. 
The judge thought she'd been drugged because Nellie said she couldn't remember anything. And he was like, oh, I've seen this before. I know what, I know what causes that. What's that, Chris? You ever been to a MILF jazz bar? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> you ever slipped a Mickey in someone's drink? Because that's what they called roofies back in the day. Oh, boy. That's well, not funny. <laughs> well, the judge had her evaluated by several psychologists, all of whom said she was insane, with one saying she was, quote, positively demented, and another saying she needed to be put somewhere where someone could take care of her. Like a marriage. <laughs> <laughs> She was committed to the Woman's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell Island. Oh, lucky. Just locked up in with all those ladies. Nellie immediately dropped the crazy act, but all of the doctors thought her acting normal was actually her being crazy, because she had to be crazy, or why'd she be in the lunatic asylum? Yeah, think about it for a second, you idiot! Typical Catch-22 situation here. <laughs> you did this to yourself, Nellie. Over the following days, Nellie documented the piss-poor conditions of the asylum. The nurses beat the patients if they made too much noise. They were fed gruel and spoiled beef or were given dirty water to drink while they sat in unheated rooms that were infested with rats. They were given ice baths in which all the patients had to bathe in the same dirty water and had to share one towel even though several patients had infections and open sores. What's the reasoning for the ice bath? I don't know. I, you know? Like, are they out there doing fucking wind sprints all day? It feels like that's extra work. Yeah. You're like, I, I'm going to give you a bath in cold water because I don't feel like paying for the heat. Mm -hmm. But now I have to, and especially in the end of the 1800s, it's work to freeze water and make ice. Yeah. Like, well, we paid for this industrial size ice maker. We might as well put it to good use. Yeah. And I can almost guarantee you that they didn't have an ice maker because um, those didn't get popular until, you know, decades later. Okay. I, I'm, I mean, I've seen every modern refrigerator it has an ice maker built in so obviously they had one of those right <laughs> this is back when people were still getting fucking ice man delivering ice oh putting them in boxes to keep it as cool as possible for as long as possible i got you there were ice makers but they were very rare and new i got you when you say ice man you mean that the x-man who, who made like his own like sleds and he, he flew around on ice that guy no i don't know i don't know kids things chris i'm a grown man <laughs> I forget. You have no soul. All right. I don't even care anymore. Where were we? Well, after 10 days, the New York World was finally able to get Nellie out of the asylum, at which point she wrote her articles, which were later combined into a book aptly titled 10 Days in a Madhouse. The book was a smash hit, and Nellie was propelled to fame. In response, the government increased funding to the department responsible for the oversight of psychiatric hospitals by $850,000. Which in today's money is $39 trillion. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Just so you know, you're welcome for the conversion. I love it when people do that. I, I think I've said that before. I love when people do that. So thank you, Greg. You're welcome. Nellie would follow up that article with another one documenting her journey around the globe. Inspired by the book Around... Whoa. whoa, whoa. Huh? Excuse me? Yeah. Globe? Mm-hmm. So you're a globist? That's right. Oh. I believe the earth is curved, Greg. I believe it's curved, but I think it's, I don't know, I can't even, I'm sorry, I can't be that tarted. <laughs> yeah. I can't even mimic flat earthers. No, none of it makes sense. God. The earth is curvy, just like ladies, mm. real ladies. Milfs at the jazz bar. Mm -hmm. They've got the kids out of the way, now they just want to have fun. Mm, just like the earth. Just like Mother Earth. Mm. Mother Earth. Milf 
Look up what it stands for. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Mother Earth's at the jazz bar mm. in our fourth cosmopolitan, just singing along with the Kelsey Grammer, just having a good time. <laughs> Twirling her fingers in the air. <laughs> yeah. Toss salads and scrambled eggs. My kids are in college. I can do what I want. Points at me while she's drinking her Cosmo yeah. across the bar. Hey, it's my chance. <laughs> you lower your fedora a little and just saunter out <laughs> onto the floor. Do a little twirl on my way over yeah. to her. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nellie was inspired by the book Around the World in 80 Days, and she set off on a whirlwind adventure and actually completed the trip in 72 days, proving that Jules Verne was a goddamn idiot. Yeah, dude, I agree. Yeah. And he does the name Verne a disservice. Everyone knows Verne Troyer was the best of all Vernes. Oh. I always thought it was the Verne that Ernest was talking to. Maybe. Yeah. Or La Verne and Shirley. Oh, yeah. All better than Jules Verne. That's true. This guy was trash. God, garbage-ass human. Yep. Here's where I normally would apologize to the family of Jules Verne listening, but instead, fuck you, Jules Verne's family. <laughs> yeah, he was wrong about everything. <laughs> fucking moron. He might as well have been writing fucking fiction. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> In 1895, Nelly, who was 31... Married 73-year-old millionaire manufacturer Robert Seaman. <laughs> <laughs> what a stud. Changed her name from Cochran to Seaman. <laughs> I guess he finished. Anyways. What next, Pubington? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know what? I ain't going to say she's a gold digger, Greg, but I don't see her with no broke-ass multi-millionaire manufacturing magnate. Okay, good. <laughs> She took over his business, which was an ironworks, and invented an improved milk can and a stacking garbage can. She was a progressive employer and took good care of her workers, but the business went bankrupt and she had to go back to reporting. She would cover the eastern front of World War I and would be the first woman to report from the war zones in Austria and Serbia. In 1922, Nellie Bly died at the age of 57 from pneumonia. In the 98 years since, Nellie has been portrayed in numerous films and plays and has been memorialized by being placed on U.S. postage stamps and by being inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Yay! So, pretty good. Pretty, pretty good lady. Well, now let's pivot and talk about Agent 355. Well, the year was 1778 and the British Army and the American Continental Army were in a bit of a stalemate. After three years of fighting, they were pretty much where they started in terms of territory gained and lost, with the Brits holding the key port city of New York. American Jesus, a.k.a. George Washington, needed information on the movements of the British. Up to this point, he had been using military spies to gather intelligence, but they had the nasty habit of being caught and executed. Yeah, problem there was, they would show up, and they'd have a little boy playing the fife next to them, another playing the drums as they were spying. <laughs> You guys quiet down. I think they see us. <laughs> Fuck, we've been made. <laughs> Wearing this bright-ass blue uniform. <laughs> so, Washington turned to his buddy, Major Benjamin Talmadge, and asked him to find some reliable civilian spies in New York City. Their identities were to be so well-guarded that even Washington didn't want to be told their names. The first man Talmadge recruited was a dude by the name of Abraham Woodhull, who went by the alias of Samuel Culper. 
Eventually, the Brits noticed that Woodhull was making a lot of trips into Manhattan, which was suspicious because he said he was going to see the musical Hamilton on Broadway every time, and no one could get tickets to that thing. And thus, Woodhull had to recruit another spy, a man named Robert Townsend. Yeah, the British are like, listen, I got to see it. I got in. I don't like the ending. Not a big fan. <laughs> that Lynn manuel Miranda is a genius. I, I really enjoy the songs, but uh, I, I don't agree with how this whole Bullshit. thing goes. Yeah. <laughs> Townsend apparently couldn't think of his own cool spy name, so he just went by Samuel Culper Jr. Together, they formed a spy ring known as the Super Duper Best Friend Father and Son Spy Squad. No girls allowed. That name was deemed too dumb and was also a fake dumb thing I just made up. And instead, it became known as the Culper Ring. I like your name better. Me too. The Culper Ring was initially successful, but could really only provide intelligence involving the movements of the British Navy, which was basically useless information to Washington. But Greg, I thought this episode was supposed to be about women. You just couldn't put aside your sexist views for one episode? Well, listener, you idiot. <laughs> that is where our super secret, super special lady known only as Agent 355 enters the story. The only written reference to Agent 355 was in a coded letter from Abraham Woodall to Benjamin Talmadge in which he said, I intend to visit 727. I'm just... Uh, <laughs> it's okay, I liked it. Scared Edgar Allan Poe hiding in the closet <laughs> voice. <laughs> but he said, I intend to visit 727, which was code for New York, before long, and think the assistance of a 355, code for lady, as my acquaintance shall outwit them all. In New York, Major John Andre was head of British intelligence. He was also an eligible bachelor who loved to have sex with ladies from families that were loyal to the English, and then engage in pillow talk that showed how much of a badass he and the Brits were. For example, a housewife named Lydia Derrig once heard him bragging about a surprise attack on the Americans. She snuck word out, which found its way to George Washington. When the Americans weren't surprised by the attack at all and won the battle, Andre questioned everyone in the house, except Lydia because he thought that all women just followed the political beliefs of their husbands and fathers. That's right, listener. You get a story of a bad bitch inside another story about a bad bitch. <laughs> I was thinking he's like, Oh, you are a woman. Hmm. Obviously, you had no role in this. Next. You can't play a role in history, because it's not called history. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how the probably how the shithead was. That's how the British sound. <laughs> nailed, <laughs> yeah, nice nailed that accent. <laughs> Well, back to Agent 355. It became evident that Agent 355, through whatever means, was the main source of information and that she was gleaning it from Andre. When he left for Charleston in December of 1779, the intelligence coming from the Culper Ring dried up. But when Andre moved back to New York in May of 1780... They got really moist. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> the spy ring had their biggest success yet. The Culper Ring had learned that American General Benedict Arnold, who... Honestly deserves a show in his own right. Absolutely, you know? yeah. Uh, he was all set to surrender West Point, which at the time was basically the most important fort in the hands of the Continental Army. In exchange, Arnold would be given 20,000 pounds. Of chicken. They, they always get you on the back end. It's like you know, <laughs> that whole thing, I'll give you a million doll hairs. Ah. Ah, you got me. Well, this is 20,000 British pounds. Ah. His main point of contact with the British was everyone's favorite chatterbox, John Andre. Now, the Americans never released how they were getting the information, but all the evidence of the plan came from letters John Andre was sending Arnold, and it only happened during times when Andre was in New York. 
It is highly suspected that Agent 355 was the Culper Ring member who was able to intercept these letters and pass them on to Major Talmadge, which allowed the Continental Force to track Andre's movements and eventually arrest him while he was carrying maps of West Point and a pass signed by Eggs Benedict Arnold himself. Seems like too much evidence. It's a lot. Maybe he was set up by the CIA, the FBI, Cuba. There's got to be some sort of conspiracy here. Mm-hmm. Let's dig deeper. Yep. John Andre confessed his plot and was hanged. Well, <laughs> never mind. There it is. <laughs> Benedict Arnold got wise that the jig was up and escaped to New York City, which was still controlled by the British. The Culper Ring and most likely Agent 355 had prevented a massive loss for the Americans. Benedict Arnold's just hanging out and he's like, hey, John Andre, what was what's he doing? Is that George Washington? What is George Washington putting a noose around John's neck? Ooh, hey. Yeah, check, please. I'll see you later. (laughs) Well, still, Arnold was in New York and knew that several people posing as loyalists were actually dirty American rebel spies. And members of the Culper Ring were arrested, possibly including Agent 355. Some sources say that 355 was pregnant at the time of her arrest and gave birth to a baby boy named Robert Townsend Jr. while imprisoned on the HMS Jersey, which was a British prison ship. This leads many to theorize that Agent 355 was the common-law wife of Robert Townsend, also known as Samuel Culper Jr. Make it her, baby. Samuel Culper Jr. Jr. Samuel Culper. That is hard to say. Jr. Jr. (laughs) Others believe that Agent 355 was a woman named Anna Strong, who came from a loyalist family that lived next door to Abraham Woodall. According to this theory... Anna Strong would relay meetup locations for the spies and couriers by hanging her laundry out to dry in coded patterns. This theory also fits because some sources say that women weren't imprisoned on the HMS Jersey at all, but Anna Strong would often be seen on the ship delivering food and visiting her husband, who was imprisoned there. Also, Anna's husband received a reimbursement payment from George Washington for his participation in the Culper Ring. But... Anna's husband had spent most of his time in prison, and the sum of the payment makes some theorize that Anna was being paid for her work instead. Well, actually, what was happening was her husband was performing hits for George Washington inside the prison, just shanking people in the showers and shit. Think so? Yeah, so he had to pay him for those jobs. The old ship showers they had back then. (laughs) Yeah. On the flip side, Anna Strong's work and location on Long Island doesn't really explain how the ring got information out of John Andre. This leads some sources to speculate that Agent 355 was closer to John Andre and used his bachelorhood and loose lips against him to gather intelligence. We will never know who Agent 355 really was, but no matter whether she used drying laundry, her sexuality, or some sweet-ass Jason Bourne karate chops to deliver information, it is clear that the Americans were lucky to have a woman who is so willing to risk her life and liberty to see that the British got their messed up teeth kicked in by the Continental Army. I like it. It's very Sir Richard Attenborough of you. I don't know why. It just just happened. It just kind of ventured into that. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, it's the same reason I I stumble into gay bars. It's just, I don't know. (laughs) Oh, oh, okay. The music's really good in here, guys. Yeah. You're very friendly. Boys club, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Cool. All right. (laughs) All right. Well, it is time for the first time in maybe like two and a half months for us to take our first break together. Mm. Let's scissor. Uh, Well, I was was just going to say let's have more drinks, but hey. That's what I meant by more drinks. Yeah. We'll do that after the drinks for sure. Okay. Do that airplane kiss you talked about that one time. Yeah. 
I don't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to Hunter Proof History, which is filmed in front of a live studio audience. <laughs> Thanks, Wolf Dick, for putting that in there. Now, I do miss that. TV shows don't do that anymore. The whole filmed in front of a live studio audience. No, they do not. They just lie to you with laugh tracks. Which are way worse. Unlike what just happened here, where a group of people laughed. Yes, they did. At, at my uh, acknowledgement that they exist. Um, yeah, so... We're totally real! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we told you about a couple of super awesome special ladies in the first half of this episode. I'm not going to recap that. Just go back and listen if you missed anything from those first two parts. But come on, they're both awesome. You should have been on the edge of your seat listening to this. We're about to get into two more super special ladies. Ooh, are we? No, no, <laughs> no, that would never happen for oh. me. Yeah, especially this next one we're about to talk about. That could never happen for me. I have too many facial warts. Facial warts? <laughs> She'd be like, no, sir, here's a restraining order. HPV has somehow taken over my facial <laughs> yeah. skin. I, yeah. I'm not sure what happened. The doctors don't know. It is what it is. Listen, my fetish is letting toads pee on my face. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Greg, would you like to hear... The tale of one Hedy Lamar. Fuck no, but I know the listener would. Okay. So let's continue. <laughs> All right. Hedy Lamar was born Hedvig Eva Marie Kiesler in Vienna, Austria in 1914. And that's the last time I'm going to say her full name because it's just Thank you. ridiculous. At an early age, Hedy decided she wanted to be an actress. At the age of 12. I came to that same conclusion when I was young. Yeah? Yep. Did you want to be an actress? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. That explains all those Polaroids I found of you where you're tucking and wearing that kimono. Hey, but jokes aside, mm -hmm. I had a friend when I was growing up, and uh, we lived in Colorado for a few years. That's completely irrelevant to the story. I don't know why I said that. Because you like to brag about all the places you've been. Okay, fine. You've been out of state. True. I understand. <laughs> Your parole officer doesn't care. Yeah, so I, I had this friend growing up. And he was the oldest. I was going to say, he got AIDS. That's how the story ends. The end. Okay. Walker told me I had AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, growing up, it was him and his younger brother. I think we were like 10, 11 years old. And he had a younger brother that I want to say he was like seven. Mm -hmm. And of course, the parents, no other siblings or anything like that. Well, I knew them for probably a year or two before my buddy actually showed me pictures of his younger brother when his younger brother was little. Mm hmm I guess a mom had really wanted to have a girl. Oh, no. And didn't get a girl. Oh, no. And so, yeah, dude, when he was like two, three years old, he had like curly, like long curled blonde hair, not naturally curly, like curling iron curled. Oh, my God. And she dressed him up in dresses and shit. Oh. I thought it was the strangest thing. So what? He, he was a normal kid. He did get caught looking him and his friend like playing with their wieners in the closet one time. And this is not... In character. <laughs> yeah. This is not a joke. Right. That literally happened. Wow. I mean, little kids do shit like that. Right. But he was a relatively normal fucking kid. And I see these pictures and it's like, what the 
fuck? I Who think, would do that? I think we just solved the murder of John Benet Ramsey. <laughs> Turns out it was a dude. <laughs> Oh, man, that's funny, because kind of, like, <laughs> dressed up like that yeah. to an extent. That is crazy. You know, actually, thinking back on it, when I was probably eighth grade, seventh and eighth grade, and we had music class, and you had to, uh, we had to do, like, a lip-syncing thing to a, a music uh, video or a song or something, and I knew there was one part that had to So be- while I was in choir, you were lip-syncing fucking music videos. Yes. That's cool. That's Texas music classes for you, okay? I was in Texas at the time. <laughs> But so the the whole idea was you lip sync or perform to this this song, and one part had to be played by somebody's mom, and I volunteered to wear my mom's dress and hats and jewelry to be the mom. Like there wasn't very much provocation from the other guys. Like like I I, I did it. Yeah. Yeah. And now the thing. Well, somebody's got to do it. Yeah. Three seconds after the question is posited. Yeah. Now I'm thinking about it. You know, that answers a lot of questions. You know, that's funny. <laughs> Makes sense. I put your mom's thong on once, like when we were done, just kind of danced around in the mirror. <laughs> but that's it. You're like, I haven't wiped in three days, bitch. This is all for you. Jesus. <laughs> well, at the age of 12, Hetty won a beauty contest and soon enrolled in acting classes. At the age of 16, she faked a permission slip from her mom and went to work in the Austrian film industry under the name Hetty Kiesler. She was an extra in a film called Money on the Street and had a small speaking part in another film called Storm in a Water Glass. And these very literal titles. You know, people don't understand this. Cinema in Austria was very young at this point in time. They're, you know, they don't have a lot of great ideas. So the first time... It's like a three-second movie. It's a dude who picks up a, a dollar. He's like, I found money in the street. And Hetty's <laughs> in the background going, pointing at him like, yes, nodding. <laughs> and the second one was Storm in a Water Glass. And it's a guy swirling his water glass to make like a mini tornado. Yeah. And his wife walks in and is like, what the fuck are you doing? End of film. Credits roll. Yeah. That's that's the movie she was in at those point. That's what I'm going to title this old-fashioned I'm drinking. Storm in a Water Glass. Mm. Because it's going to make me fucking rage a little bit. Just get belligerent, rip a TV off a wall. I don't know. Yeah. Just going to go full EF5 on this fucker right here. <laughs> Drown myself in the pool. Who knows, man? <laughs> Somehow I'll get blamed for that, just like William Shatner got blamed for drowning his wife. Well, shortly thereafter, starring in these movies, old Hetty moved to Berlin to continue her film career. Her first big role was the German film Ecstasy. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh is right. This was a controversial film because it showed sweet, innocent, clean, 18-year-old Hedy Kiesler having an orgasm. Oh, my God. Now, this wasn't one of your pernos, Greg. So she didn't actually have a real orgasm. She had to fake it. Wait. Mm Mm-hmm. So... That implies that they can actually be real? Well, supposedly. Huh. Uh, yeah, I've never experienced it. I've got some research to do. Go ahead. <laughs> they actually accomplished her fake orgasm by poking her with a needle off camera at the moment of fake climax. Okay, so a needle can deliver something similar to an orgasm then, right? Again, I've never experienced that, but I've I've heard that. Ha! Huh. 
All those guys at work are going to feel real stupid for calling me Needle Dick. <laughs> it's just a little prick, is what I've heard. <laughs> just giving it to them ladies. <laughs> well, also, the super shady directors use telephoto lenses to get sneaky shots of Hetty nude to use in their movie. They definitely would have used potty cams if they were available at oh, the time. Yeah. Fucking pervs. The glass coffee table. Ooh. Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Can you imagine, though, you're watching the movie, you're at the big red carpet release, and it's just like, here's plot, 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 and all of a sudden it's heady in the shower, and it's obviously taken from a distance, like it's all pixelated and shit, and she's like, wait a second, I don't remember this scene. Mm-hmm. Where did this come from? Pretty fucked up. And you look over, and the director's just furiously masturbating. <laughs> Ecstasy was a big hit in most of Western Europe, but it was banned in America because of the prudes not wanting to see her fake O-face, and was banned in Germany because Hetty Kiesler was Jewish. They only want those pure Aryan orgasms in Germany. It was a different time, wasn't it? And in not a good way. I mean, I feel like I need to say that disclaimer for some reason. Well, I feel like you were praising Hitler earlier. I just said he was great. He was a great (laughs) figure. He was not good. I don't agree with anything other than his treatment of animals. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. But other than that, I categorically disagree with them. And people shouldn't smoke. That should be their right. They definitely shouldn't drink. Pause. Ah, oh, no, they shouldn't. <sighs> well, had he returned to the theater to act in plays, it would often be sent flowers by her admirers who tried their hardest to get backstage to meet her. One of these fans was a dude named Friedrich Mandel, a wealthy Austrian arms merchant. Hetty repeatedly refused his request to come to her dressing room, but eventually he got a shot and Hetty fell for his charms. It's like every neckbeard's dream. It is. All they want is that shot and it worked for this dude. A fucking wealthy Austrian arms merchant. Yeah. Neckbeards. Okay, just keep that in mind. Yeah, you're not Zuckerberg trying to get in Taylor Swift's backstage area, okay? <laughs> He didn't come from mom's basement. No, you smell like onions. No one wants to be around you. And tendies. Yeah. <laughs> All those chicken tendies. Hetty's parents, who were both Jewish, weren't so keen on her hooking up with Mandel, who was a BFF of Italian asshole Benito Mussolini and German asshole, but Greg's apparent hero, no. Adolf Hitler. No! <laughs> but you go and tell an 18-year-old what to do. You tell them they're wrong. You tell them, hey, you're fucking this up. It doesn't work. Oh, I'm doubling down now, stupid mom and dad. (laughs) Yeah. And so, at the age of 18, Hetty married the 33-year-old Mundell. Well, this might be surprising, but sometimes being married to a weapons manufacturer who spends his free time hanging out with fascist dictators and stalking 18-year-old actresses just isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Huh. The more you know. (laughs) Yeah. Mundell forced Hetty to convert to Catholicism. He forbade her from acting, and he spent $300,000 of his own money buying up copies of Ecstasy because it offended him to know that his 18-year-old wife could ever be seen having an orgasm. If I haven't seen it, no one will. <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's my evil German accent. <laughs> yeah, he's like, no, the only orgasm she's ever had is when someone stuck a pen in her, and I can't reach that level, so this is fake as shit. Fake as shit. I'm going to buy this all up. 
Hetty would later say that she was a virtual prisoner in an Austrian castle home. Is there any other type of home in Austria? You know, the more we do castles, the more we do these fucking shows, the more I'm like, why is everyone getting locked up in a castle? Mm -hmm. Why is that the the go to? Like, I thought it was rare when we did Itza, but now I'm like, okay, you know, the, the Romanovs got thrown in a castle. She got thrown in a castle. Castles on castles, man. Yeah. I'm like, okay. Like, are castles like just three bedroom, two bath house version, uh, you know, American houses in Europe? Opinions are like castles. Everyone's got one. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> castles, castles. Got it. All right. Nailed it. All right. Well, on the occasions that Mendel would let Hetty out into the real world, he'd take her on his business trips to discuss developing and selling weapons to the Nazis. It was at these meetings that Hetty first learned about the field of applied science and became more interested in teaching herself about that field of study. And, you know, I, I applaud her because I have started and quit Duolingo like a thousand fucking times. Same. You know, I'll never learn English. Just never get there. <laughs> In 1937, Hetty decided that being married to Mandel was super lame, so she tossed on all of her jewelry, disguised herself as the maid. Hey, hey all right. Mm. That's how all of my favorite pernos start. A little role play. And then she hopped on a train for Paris and would eventually wind up in London. It was in London that Hetty met Louis B. Mayer, who was the head of Hollywood's MGM Studios. Ever heard of it, listener? It's got the lion that roars. No big deal. Except on Tom and Jerry cartoons, it's Jerry who's roaring. <laughs> okay. No one watches Tom and Jerry. No. I just lost everyone. You know what? I'm just going to start making up references. That one line just ruined the entire podcast. I'm just going to be like, yeah, you guys remember Fiddle Faddle and Hijinks? That was a great show, right? Podcasting career over before it started. (laughs) That's fine. Well, Meyer was scouting the local talent, which I do every night, baby. I wish that was my job. Yeah, no shit. You want to make it big in Hollywood, eh? (laughs) Back to my hotel room. You want to be on Fox News? Well, hashtag me too won't exist for another hundred years. <laughs> he said in the women's episode of Hundred Proof History. I'm a character, Chris. That's true. This isn't really me. That's true. It is him. It's totally him. He's abusive. He's hit me three times. Are you saying something over there? Nope. Nope. Nothing. Oh. I'm just trying to read ahead in oh, this okay. outline. Yeah, let's go. Chop, chop, Chris. When Meyer met Hetty, he offered her $125 a week to star in MGM films. Hey, how about some of that Hetty? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Make it big. I'm going to give you a Hetty job. $125. <laughs> That's expensive. That is really expensive for that kind of... You know what? Never mind. Okay. <laughs> well, Hetty said, okay, no. But she hopped on the ocean liner in New York with Meyer and she took a job with MGM once she was able to negotiate a salary of $500 a week. Damn. Just a nice little 400% increase from Hell that yeah, initial Hedy. offer. Yeah, get it. She knew her worth. Upon signing the contract, Meyer convinced Hetty to change her name from Keesler to Lamar so she wouldn't be known as the ecstasy lady. But Lamar had two R's for some inexplicable reason. Yeah. And also, what a different time where you don't want to be known as the lady who's, you know, orgasmed. What a different time. What a different time. Lamar <laughs> <laughs> well, promoted Lamar as the, quote, world's most beautiful woman 
and film audiences fell in love with her. Over the next few years, she'd be in several Hollywood hits opposite actors such as Spencer Tracy, Clark Gable, and old Jimmy Stewart. That's my Jimmy Stewart. That was terrible. That was awful. <laughs> this got I loved off. it. Jimmy Stewart. Shut down the bank. <laughs> Angel gets his wings. <laughs> but since we're talking about late 1930s Hollywood, pretty much all of her roles were super sexy lady who talks funny because she comes from a faraway land. She was often featured for her natural beauty and given very few actual speaking lines in the movies. Hetty also didn't really care much for the limelight. She did her best to avoid crowds and couldn't understand why on earth anyone would want her autograph. She much preferred the lemon light. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm drunk enough to love it. I just think it's funny that we, you know, we tell jokes to each other. Yeah. Meanwhile, we have this audience driving home from work or... It's completely sober. Whatever. They're sober and they're just like, oh, these guys are fucking idiots. That's why we'll never make it big. But you know what? Having fun doing it. No. There are people pounding their dashboards right now, dying laughing, <laughs> tears flowing out their eyes like, living light, this guy. <laughs> well, the combination of being bored with her typecast sexy lady movie roles and being somewhat reclusive led Hetty even further down the path of science and invention. In 1942, World War II was raging on, and the U.S. Navy had developed radio-controlled torpedoes, which were pretty cool, but they were super easy to jam, which would send the torpedo veering off course. I like to picture these guys with that RC thing, mm. the remote control, <laughs> one turns, one controls acceleration. <laughs> we're going to get them this time, fellas. Oh, what is happening here? Oh, no. Oh, no. The Japanese are on to us. <laughs> well, Hetty thought, what if the signal jumped around at different frequencies and couldn't be jammed at all? At which point, some Hollywood producers said, what if you jumped around at different frequencies in a bathing suit, sweetheart? <laughs> Hetty joined forces with George Antheil, who was a composer and pianist. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> he played the piano. Oh. Yeah. Together, they developed a device that implemented Hetty's frequency-hopping idea, and Antheol was able to put it in a player piano and control it with radio signals. The two patented the device on August 11, 1942, but the U.S. Navy wasn't real keen on turning to outside inventors for their equipment, so the frequency-spread spectrum device was initially ignored. It wasn't until 1962, 20 years later, that the Navy had an updated version of the device installed in every single one of their ships. Now, you're probably saying, Big deal! She invented something to make torpedoes go boom easier. Why do I care about radio signals? This is a future, old man! Radio's dead! <laughs> That's exactly how our listeners sound. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. That's a good <laughs> summation of our listener base right there. <laughs> Well, jackass! Maybe it might interest you to know that Hetty's invention became the basis of both Bluetooth and Wi-Fi technologies, which you're probably using to listen to this very fucking podcast. Huh, imagine that. So you put some damn respect on her name. Hetty Lamar would go on to star in more movies and would open her own studios and produce her own films after leaving MGM. Before she died in the year 2000 at the age of 85, Hetty would be given a Hollywood Walk of Fame star, an Electronic Frontier Foundation's Pioneer Award, and in 2014, she would be posthumously inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Not too shabby for a sexy girl from a distant land. 
Not at all. She uh, she did well for herself. Well, once again, it is time to pivot. Now, we're going to tell you a little tale about Jing Shi. Jing Shi was born Shi Yang in 1775 in the Guangdong province of China. Oh, you nailed that shit. That was amazing. Dude, three hours of practice just for that one sentence. <laughs> You're like, come on, Duolingo, don't fail me now. Oh, shit, I don't even want to try Chinese <laughs> or Mandarin. Whatever. I don't, know. I don't know the different dialects. I know Mandarin's the dominant one. I don't know the different dialects. I'm so ignorant. Not much is really known about her early life, other than she worked as a madam on a floating brothel, and in 1801, at the age of 26, she married a notorious Chinese pirate, Zhang Yat. Now, Zhang Yat was a pretty badass pirate in his own right, and had formed his own small fleet of ships. In exchange for using her brothel in position as a madam to spy on his enemies, Zhang Yat and Jing Shi signed a contract that gave her 50% control of share of Zhang Yat's business. Yeah, it's... Typical divorce stuff, man. You know, as I'm finding out right now from my wife's attorney. <laughs> just She gets 50%. Doesn't matter. She owns half of 100 Proof History. She, she owns 50 Proof History. Oh, no. Yeah. Somewhere around 1798, Zheng Yat had kidnapped a 15-year-old kid named Chung Po, who had turned out to be pretty good at the whole pirate life. So Zheng Yat and Jing Shi adopted him. To make him the male heir to their empire. Yeah, as soon as he kidnapped him, he threw on the eye patch, like cut off his legs to get a peg. <laughs> He's like, yo ho, yo ho, a pirate's life for me. Give me some rum. Yeah, so he's We like, don't have that over here in the Asian seas. <laughs> yeah, this is China. Where are the fucking parrots? Yeah. <laughs> I'm Jake Poe, a fucking pirate extraordinaire. I need to find the black pearl. <laughs> <laughs> Every time he goes to take a shit, he like... Gets a little grease pen and writes an X in the bottom of the toilet. <laughs> oh, X marks the spot. <laughs> Let me deliver the treasure. <laughs> Doesn't even have a, a Chinese accent at all. <laughs> no, he is <laughs> The treasure. He's just completely British. Well, it's almost... I gave him like a Dutch accent. <laughs> deliver the treasure. He works for the East India's <laughs> Dutch company. There you go. There Boom. Right. Yeah. Tie into tie our old episode. Fake history coming at you. Well, and their empire was growing. Together, Zheng Yat and Zheng Shi used Zheng's abilities as a military leader and Shi's whorehouse full of spies to amass a pirate federation consisting of 70,000 men serving aboard over 400 junk ships by 1804, at which point they became known as the Red Flag Fleet. Yeah, and just so you guys know, a junk ship isn't like a trash, like garbage, Mm -mm. no one wants a ship. It was actually a, a type of Chinese sailing ship. They're not getting cars off the lemon lot here. Right. They're not me buying this fucking 2002 Kia Sorento and just hoping it makes another 10,000 miles. You know, no, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a legit thing. It's worth the $600. <laughs> I had to finance it for 72 months <laughs> at 19%. But, uh, you know, it's worth it. You, you got to have a car. That's all I'm saying. It's true. In 1807, Zheng Yat kicked the proverbial bucket. Zheng Shi said... I'm a strong pirate woman who don't need no man, and took over control of the Red Flag Fleet. By 1809, her fleet had expanded to over 800 junks and another 1,000 smaller ships. She earned the trust of her male lieutenants by sharing her power with them. She also created a set of pirate laws that dictated how stolen booty (laughs) was to be divided. (laughs) Yeah, just spread that cheeks. Among the fleet. No, oh, booty. Oh, (laughs) 
and also who the loot could be taken from. Rule number one was anyone that didn't follow the orders of Jing Shi would be beheaded on the spot. Well, actually, rule number one was don't talk about Jing Shi. Don't Xi. talk about Red Flag Fleet. That's right. Uh, yeah. Her code of laws also had special rules for female captives. Pirates usually made the attractive prisoners their wives. The not-so-attractive captives were released or ransomed. Xi's law stated that the pirates had to be faithful to their wives, and any pirate caught raping a prisoner would be executed. Oh, and if one of the pirates cheated on their wife by having consensual sex with a prisoner, the man would be beheaded, and the woman would have cannonballs chained to her feet before being thrown overboard. Worth it. My question. Okay. How do you chain a cannonball? I don't know. I'm not... It's a ball. It's a ball, yeah. I I mean, our balls are connected by the vas deferens. Mine has a chain, actually, your, running, running one between. Ball? Yeah, <laughs> one ball. It's like a piercing with a little Persian chain jewelry. Mm-hmm, exactly. It's, it's actually it a charm bracelet. I have, like, little mementos of all the places I've visited hanging uh-huh. off of my testicles. I might, I'm sorry, my testicle. I have a slap bracelet. You remember those? <laughs> yeah, wrapped around it. Yeah. <laughs> slap it and it holds it on and, you know, keeps it in place. <laughs> <laughs> I like to, I don't know where that, Yeah, I don't know, I don't know, I don't got nothing, that's good. (laughs) Now, it's important to remember that these were real life pirates and not the lovable scant pirates you see in, you know, movies that might star characters like Johnny Depp, I don't know. What? He was, but he was so nice. Exactly. He was so well-meaning. Well, these guys did some stuff that's pretty fucked up by uh, modern standards. Yeah. You know. Maybe normal back then, but now it'd be like, First, to retain power over the fleet, Xing Shi seduced and married her adopted son and heir to the empire, Sheng Po. Okay, all right. I'm half masked already, if you know what I mean. Sailing <laughs> term and also penis term. You want this Po? Yeah. Come get you some Po. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you a Sheng Po. You know, like pole? Yeah. I don't, dude, I got Like Hung here. Pole. But it's Chung. (laughs) (laughs) Together, they and the Red Flag Fleet sailed up and down the Chinese coast, raiding coastal villages, killing the men, and stealing their goods and money. Yay! Yay! (laughs) The women and children were taken captive and were either forced into a life of piracy or were sold off into slavery. This makes the movie Peter Pan, the cartoon version from Disney, like you go to the parks and they're singing the songs and Mm -hmm. stuff and dancing around, much darker. Think like <laughs> under decks, there's just a bunch of women and children. They're waiting to sell off. If just fucking Peter Pan would just fuck off for a second, so oh, they could, yeah, so they could make some money here. <laughs> In 1808, the Chinese government said enough is enough and launched a series of fierce battles against the Red Flag Fleet. But Xing Shi was a better captain than those of the Chinese Navy. She destroyed or captured so many of their ships that they eventually had to resort to using fishing vessels to fight their battles. In the three years following Zhang Yat's death, she and her fleet could not be defeated by the Chinese or by the well-equipped Portuguese and British bounty hunters that patrolled the seas surrounding China. But, like everything, all good things must come to an end. After suffering a series of defeats in the winter of 1809, Qing Shi was finally outmatched by the Portuguese navy in early 1810. But Xi was cunning and was able to negotiate an amnesty with the Chinese government. By this time, her fleet had shrunk to just over 17,000 men from a height of 70,000 men. Of that group, 211 were banished from China and 126 were executed. 
The remaining only had to surrender their weapons. They got to keep their ships and anything that they had stolen along the way in the preceding years. What a fucking sweet deal. So why did 126 of them get executed? Yeah, it's, you it, know? it's not really explained in these stories. Like I, I just imagine the Chinese government being like, nope, nope. That fucking guy right there, though, <laughs> yeah. he's off the table. Yeah. That guy, he's wearing the Ed Hardy shirt, fucking dead. <laughs> Get him. You know, you just have to wonder if there were people that had committed crimes against specific people that had yeah. royal relatives or something like that. Like, why specifically It reminds those me people? of The Office, and there's a, there's a talking head with Dwight, and he's talking about every time a fresh batch of POWs is brought into a Japanese internment camp or a Japanese POW camp, they would pick one man to be executed, kind of like send a message. And he, he said, I always wondered how they pick the man. And I always thought I'd be good at picking the man, you know? <laughs> so it's kind of like that. It's like 126 out of 17,000. Like, how do you... There had to be something specific. Yeah. Especially since most of them faced no penalty at all. Right. Oh, that, They got to keep everything that, and the ships. That guy's wearing the earring on the wrong side. He's not a real pirate. Get him, fellas. <laughs> Let's look under that eye patch. Yeah. A functioning eye. Yeah. <laughs> Walk the plank. <laughs> well, Jing Shi kept 120 ships for herself and used them in the salt trade. You could say she was a salty bitch. You could. But I won't. <laughs> <laughs> but you won't. <laughs> She negotiated a sweet government gig for her adopted son-turned-lover, Sheng Po. Their marriage would be officially recognized by the government, and the couple would have two kids of their own. Sheng Po would die at sea in 1822, at which point Zheng Shi would give up her sailor's life, and she opened up a gambling parlor in a brothel in Macau. She was so respected as a military mind that in 1839 she served as a military advisor to the Chinese in their first opium war versus the English. Also a good topic for... A full show. That would be. Yeah. Jing Shi would die in 1844, surrounded by her family at the very nice age of 69. Hey, ladies. End of story. All right, Greg. It is time to get into the ladies' favorite segment. Dick pics. No. Oh. Surprises. I heard they like those. Slash misconceptions you might have had. About this story, the four stories. Okay. Yeah, I do have one. Okay. Number one, I knew nothing about Zheng Shi at all. Right. Right? Yeah. What surprises me about the story upon learning it is that she was very, for the time, very women's rights as far as the slaves. Yeah. You know, no raping, no fucking cheating on your wives, none of that shit. Yeah. That's, that's just surprising. And she was and the able- fact that she was in a position of power to begin with. You know, yeah, it's very it, strange. Such great power too. Like she commanded seventy thousand people at one point. Yeah, that's impressive. And she was able to enforce those rules across seventy thousand people. Yeah, that's just fucking crazy. Yeah. especially for the late eighteenth century. Yeah. So I think of uh, the four powerful women that we've spoken about today. Mm-hmm. I think she kind of takes the prize as far as impressiveness for the time. Yeah, I, I you know agree. because yeah, a- as we see today. Women can lead nations. They can do all that shit. But back then, they can even drive cars. <laughs> <laughs> but but back in these times, and these four stories did happen at separate times. But in all of them, women were marginalized. Yes, and so that's a very surprising tale. You know, learning about that whole thing. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. What about you, man? Uh, for me, 
Well, you did the last story. Let me go back to the first story with Nellie Bly. And you did mention women are marginalized, and she was throughout her career. Like, anytime someone complained about her, they were like, hey, go talk about tampons and dresses and perfumes and stuff. Yeah. But when she went to that mental institution, and then the false pretenses fall away, she's like, I'm completely sane, and I'm still here. And that kind of shows you not only how uh, mental patients were treated back then, but also women specifically. Like, there has to be a reason you were so hysterical that we had to put you in this place. And, uh, you know, it was it was surprising because you see that stuff in, like, fiction, like Shutter Island. Yes. Or American Horror Story where, oh, we're sane, but because you're sane, you're insane. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. And the fact she exposed that as reality, that's just fucking badass that she was able to do that and put that story out there and make that kind of change. That was, I, I wouldn't have expected that coming from any sort of news reporter regardless of sex you should be like okay well that's an interesting story let's move on to the next thing but she made a change in the system yeah and that was pretty awesome agreed man well gregory why don't you take us home well thanks for listening y'all we mm-hmm. appreciate it as always again check us out hundredproofhistory.com enter into that contest to win uh that framed print yeah if you don't it's I'm, fucking badass i'm gonna keep it if you don't enter i'm gonna fucking keep it it's mine it's pretty awesome We'll post pictures up of it uh, to the social media. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, you know, maybe think about doing the Patreon. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what am I crazy? <laughs> it's pretty cool. You get some extra episodes, uh, old episodes that we recorded way way back. Yeah, we a are. Year ago, we are very close to moving the Lincoln series, our most popular series so far, over to the Patreon. Uh, we we have a, a set number we're going to keep live for everybody, and then it's going to disappear forever. Unless you subscribe to our Patreon. Yeah, we're just going to kind of keep a rolling set of, I don't know, probably 30-ish episodes or something like that. Maybe more. Uh, But then the other ones will kind of go behind that Patreon thing. We don't talk about these things. (laughs) Not really. We make it up on the air and then we stare meanly at each other. It's like, I don't fucking agree, but he just said it, so I got to agree now. Fuck you! Yeah, basically. Yeah. But we do record those uh, those hangovers once a week. That's been going on for a while now. We've got 20-something episodes, so check them out. They're cool. Yeah. We record them after these, so we're nice and toasty. Mm-hmm. <sighs> they're they're fun. <laughs> uh, when we're editing them, we don't quite remember everything. No, absolutely not. No. But yeah, thanks again for listening, and uh, we will see y'all next week. Love you forever. Bye bye. Bye. She moved to New York City with them big old titties, waving and flapping in the wind. <laughs> flapping in the wind. She's on a motorcycle. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> Naked. <laughs> Dude, women do not like date rape jokes. What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, slow down there, Pokey. <laughs> I've been working out, Greg. Look at my pecs. <laughs> gonna take you home tonight. You're gonna realize my butthole's not tight. <laughs> <laughs>